0: Hello and welcome to the Chicago Humanities Festival podcast. The festival brings together leading voices in arts and culture, journalism and politics, and science and technology to help you grapple with big questions and go beyond the headlines. Today's conversation is from the program The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design, which was live streamed on October 8th, 2020. This program was presented with the support of Bank of America. You can explore hundreds of videos, check out upcoming events, and support this free content at chicagohumanities.org. Now here is our program with Hank Green, Kurt Kolstad, and Roman Mars.
1: Hello and welcome. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm Hank. Hank Green and Roman and Kurt are here with me. It's really cool to be a part of the Chicago Humanities Festival, which is not something that I had on my schedule for this year. Um, (laughs) But no no one knows what's happening this year. Uh, And uh, it's a joy to be talking to these two very smart people who know lots of things about our, uh, our world. I wanna start with a question that was inspired by the first conversation you guys had on your book launch day, where you had an event in San Francisco and there was a sizzle reel before the event. And the last thing that was set on the sizzle reel, was said by some, I don't even remember who it was, some very important person. And they said, San Francisco is the only city in the world that's magical. Roman and Kurt, is San Francisco the only city in the world that's a magical?
2: I almost asked, I almost like (laughs) went into the chat and I was
1: like, so you guys, is it the old, like this Bay Area Titan says it's the only city in the world that's magical, is it?
3: No, I tell? would say not at all. There's lots of places that are magical. It's beautiful downtown Oakland, California is magical. Chicago is <laughs> magical. New York is magical. D.C. is magical. I think cities in general are magical. This is like a book yeah, to the are. testament of cities being magical all around the world, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> It's so funny. They,
1: they, very, they very, very are. Um, I, your book made me think a lot of things. But the, the first thing that I wanted to talk about um, is appreciation. I think that in general, we don't have enough of it going around in society right now. We're not good at appreciating our own labor. We're not good at appreciating the work of other people, the ingenuity that's around us. And the process of noticing that you are asking us to do with this book and that you do in, in your work, I think is like, is like, to me, it is a first step on the path to doing the work of appreciation how do you get into the mind frame of always noticing? Well, you
3: know, it is an active act, I guess is the first thing is like, it isn't natural to me. And um, I really trained myself through the the course of doing this show to notice and enjoy these things, um, especially when they're annoying, like, (laughs) like, you know, like, (laughs) I love roads and infrastructure and bridges and just like everyone else, when I run across them being built, I get uh, pretty annoyed. And I have to sort of check myself and, you know, like, you know, and realize like, Oh, these are these things that I talk about and love. So I should chill the hell out. If I'm like being delayed by them, I should like have a moment where I enjoy them. And so that's one part of the noticing. The other part is like the, the noticing is self rewarding. Like, if you go out looking for stories in the world and you find ways to enjoy them and process them, um, you will enjoy the world more. Like it's a, it's a positive feedback loop. And, and that's one of the things that I've learned over the course of the show.
2: And I would yeah. just say too about the book specifically, it's like we the first two chapters are about things that are conspicuous and things that are inconspicuous. And those sound like polar opposites, But those are both like categories of things you might not notice. Like Mm -hmm. stoplight is something you kind of don't notice because you see it everywhere. And then there are things Mm -hmm. you don't notice because they're camouflaged or small. And so like uh, over the arc of the book, like those chapters set you up for the rest of the book. But they also are kind of a primer in how to notice things in a Mm city.
1: Yeah, I really do think that it is that. I mean, it's funny because field guides are supposed to be about the natural world. Like that's the, the, it's a a field, right? (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, and I, you know, I do appreciate, deeply appreciate the natural world. And I love to spend time noticing, um, you know, the interactions between uh, different ecosystems, like just how plants interact with each other, how animals interact with each other and with plants and with ecosystems, like that's that's one of my chief loves. And to be sort of told that it's okay to do that with a built environment. like It's almost like I need to be told
0: because yeah. like
1: I might have this sort of like bias against it because it is so mechanical and it is so functional and it is so like, you know, pave paradise kind of situation. Um, and, and to be given the permission is very, I think is 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 important.
3: I, I you know, agree. You're going to say I, something, Roman. So I wanted to well, stop talking. yeah, no, I, I think I think I had to give myself permission too, and I do think you can kind of go overboard with like you know loving everything, you know, like, but I do think that for the most part, <laughs> what I what I do enjoy about it is that, you know, the reason why it's invisible and unnoticed is because, it's it's because it works well and. And something working well is worth paying attention to too. Like we tend to notice the design that breaks. We tend to notice the design that fails. And it is nice to notice the design that that works and recognize that, oh, it was really an act of genius for me to never notice this thing. And those little embedded moments uh, you know, of genius and realize the whole city has been designed this way. And I, for the most part, uh, pass through it without being stopped, without noticing it, is something that is like, it really just shows how much we're actually being taken care of by other people that we don't notice. And and I like that feeling of being taken care of by designers.
2: Yeah. And I, I would just say that, you know, a lot of the things that we cover in the show and in the book are these things yeah. that I just assume they've been around forever until I learned they've only been around since the seventies and I was born in 1980. So, you know... You grow up right. with these things, totally, right? Yeah. Like curb cuts and ambulances, and you just think, well, that's been a thing forever. Yeah.
3: So I'm, I'm losing you a little bit, Hank.
1: Yeah, so, he's frozen. Yet, yeah, somebody had to think of that. Are you, it wasn't me. Oh, well, I can hear y'all just fine. Well, that's good.
3: Okay. Now you're my, caught up, so you're
1: my, frozen. I'll just start, I'll just keep moving. Keep going. <laughs> we got it. You're just frozen. We were discussing <laughs> a little bit that that I'll just try to keep a smile on the whole time in case I freeze again. <laughs> yeah. Um so I I have I also have big questions about engineering versus design. Like when I first started listening to nine 99% invisible, it was like this is a show about design, but then it would be not a show about design. It would be very clearly uh, about something that I don't consider design, uh, but that maybe it turns out that it is. So where do you define the the, the space between engineering and design and art and design?
3: Hmm. Between engineering oh. and design and and art and design, that those are tougher. I will tell you that the broader uh, definition of design to me is basically anything that a human came up with, is designed object. And so to me, the the reason why I chose it as a subject or as a beat for the show was that it was a way to focus attention and use it as a lens to explore the world in general and explore humans in general. Um, But had enough, you know, like, so it was broad enough to do whatever I wanted to, but just narrow enough, just enough to have it not be about everything. <laughs> and so to me that's what, you know, design is is whatever humans are. But like maybe Kurt, do you have a sense of like the difference between like engineering and design and how we how we d- define it?
2: I definitely have a take on that and it's informed by the fact that, you know, I studied architecture and one of the things I came to learn while studying architecture was that architects often get the credit for like designing the building. But in a lot of cases it's like the architect comes up with a general idea and then the engineer has to actually design how this thing's going to work. And so a lot of the best or most innovative buildings in the world are like products of like the engineering drove the design of that structure. And so, yeah, sure, the architect had an artistic idea, a vision of how people would move through the spaces, but actually executing the thing was, is very much like they're very intertwined as far as I'm concerned. Um, so engineering sometimes provides the kind of framework for design, the limitations within which all designs have to operate. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a collaboration and firms like Arup come to mind that are just like, they're behind the scenes of so many structures that you think, oh, well that firm, that architecture firm designed it. And yeah, they did, but so did these engineers, right? Like it's a it's a much bigger process and project than just, you know, one famous person who, uh, kind of gets associated with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I guess I sorry if there's a substantial lag between when you stop talking and when I start talking. There was before. I don't know if it's still there. Um, but I um my like I, I've always had a sense that uh, that that like design is art that has a function and right. like and, and and so like there's always this sense that like ev- everything is really art like there isn't a thing that isn't art. And so and so like that like where is the line between what is engineering and what is design is like well as long as there's art there and it's like you've just convinced me a little bit that there's always art there <laughs> um i have a i have a question i like to ask everybody um uh which it, 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 because i need to know oh, what what's making you happy right now
3: <sighs> what is making me happy right now it's tough. Do you have a challenge um, coin challenge like, making you happy? Me,
2: this challenge card gives me comfort.
3: I, I mean, I am, I'm, tw- I'm twiddling mine right now. Too, I know. I do. Know. I just do. I- <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's weird. I mean, I do find like, as I've been talking about the book and talking about the, the, the idea of using it to appreciate where we are and what we have, it has been rubbing off on me. You know, like it's not just I'm not just like preaching it to people and not experiencing it myself. Like I do feel that. Um, and I do enjoy the conversations about it. And that's been so much of what you know has been dominating my life right now that that's that's been that's
2: been a big part of making me happy, I'm sure. Yeah, and the the sort of ironic thing to me is like I would think that these kinds of live events would be stressful because I sometimes it's stressed. During live events, but I've actually found them to be some of the most relaxing and interesting times of my of this very busy week. So, in a way, they're kind of like a, a break from mm-hmm. from everything else. So, this conversation is making me happy.
1: Oh, that's nice. I also I agree. This conversation is also making me happy.
3: <laughs> so, why don't um, we? You're having a little bit of lag. Maybe you want to drop. So, uh,
1: yeah, I'm gonna drop off and drop back in, yeah. Okay, sure, let's okay. do that. I'll, I'll try that, see if it works.
3: <laughs> so, <right. laughs> so, yeah, here we go.
1: <laughs> this is
3: like, I did live radio for a long time. So when this type of stuff happens, I'm just like, I, I just, I ease into it like a warm tub. So I'm like, totally cool. Well, we should talk a little bit about Chicago because Chicago yes. is one of the main reasons why this show exists. Cause I worked at WBAZ in Chicago for, uh, for three years and um the the uh chicago architecture foundation i think it's actually called the chicago architecture center now has a boat tour and if you have from chicago and you haven't been on it then uh you are missing out because it is the greatest thing in the world have you been on that boat tour kurt
2: yes i have and it's like on my like short like people like what do i do in chicago it's on my short list i'm like well go here do this and take the boat tour like it's definitely yeah
3: I think I've done it five times. I think there's a part of the, of the tour that I could narrate along with the docent, And the docents are out of sight. They're so good. They're so good.
2: But even and- just seeing the city from an angle, it's like, it's like you've moved. You're used to seeing it at eye level from this one perspective. And just seeing it from a slightly different angle, even just the visual experience of it is just so powerful.
3: Yeah, and so this is something that I've had a discussion with, with Robert Smith, who was at uh, Planet Money, a longtime NPR guy, and uh, he, he came to Chicago, and I told him, uh, you have to go, and it's life-changing. And he, he came back to me, and he said, I think one of the reasons why um, Chicago is a better architecture town than New York, where he's from, is because there is that vantage point from the river in which you can see is, like, is so superior that it, like, you don't have these narrow lanes of, of streets and avenues in New York that cuts off your ability to take in um, the architecture, but Chicago has all this expanse to take in the architecture. And that's why, no matter what you know, the composition of the buildings are, it, it, it's, a, it's a greater place to appreciate architecture. Because of the way it is, so I'm. Um, this is my pandering to Chicago of the
2: show. <laughs> I mean, I will say too, as an architecture nerd, it's like that's uh, Chicago is a huge focus when you study architecture. Like, always, like yeah. huge, like probably the single, you know, if you picked out one of the most studied buildings in architecture school, the top ten, like half of them are in Chicago. Totally, I mean, it's, totally. it was a pivotal place in terms of modernism and like transitioning from from more decorative buildings to tall buildings. Like, it's just got such a place of architectural built environment history.
3: Hey, Hank, you're moving, and I can see your face again.
1: That's great. <laughs> Who knows if this is going to hold up. I apologize for the state of Montana's internet. Um, no problem. I uh, Yeah, I think that when you arrive in Chicago as a tourist, which I have done, they just put you on a boat, and they drive you down the river, and they tell you about buildings. And I'm like, yes, thank you. <laughs> That should be the way it goes. For sure. That was my experience. Um, <laughs> you know, my brother, brother lived there for a while, so I have have been. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the one one story of uh, of the built world in the book is about one of the greatest engineering feats of all time, which seems deeply impossible: turning the <laughs> Chicago River around and having it so that the poop goes down to the neighboring cities instead of to the place where they take the water out of the lake um, I don't actually understand like even having read it even having heard the story a number of times now it doesn't seem possible <laughs>
2: I guess it's very it flat well, there well and there's and there's something in so we did this story of, or I shouldn't say we did this story, of, Was told in a form before I even joined 99% Invisible, like the reversal of the Chicago River. But there have been updates since then. And it turns out the reversing might not have worked. Like the the river has been re reversing itself a little bit recently. And there's some question Mm -hmm. about whether, like, this fix that was done is going to be something that sticks. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, it does not seem to me like it would be something that would be permanent. Very few human endeavors are.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're trying to turn a river, which is like, which seems, uh, it, it, uh, to me, I don't quite get it either. It's, I, I, the principle of it is like you just dig a deeper hole on one side than right. the other, and it, it just goes downhill. It starts to go down. And, yeah. um, and that's and, But when Dan Wiseman, who's a, who's a Chicago journalist, like he's the one who reported that story for us way back when, And, uh, and still it's so amazing and it, and it is, it is like the reason why it's so big is the problem of, of Chicago, uh, just sort of drowning in its own sewage was so great. And they tried all these different things, jacking up the building, putting intake valves, like way out into Lake Michigan, all that sort of stuff until finally they Mm -hmm. just had to move earth. They had to move like the, the flow of water. Which seems like yeah. which is a type of thing that like creates the grand canyon like it's the type of thing that is like an elemental force that they decide to harness, and it's one of those things that maybe if it was happening now, I would be like uh nervous or you know upset <laughs> by it you know but like there's something about it happening a hundred years ago that you're like that's super charming look at those guys in those <laughs> in their waistcoats it's great and
1: so
3: yeah. I don't know what it is about engineering feats where when it happens a long time ago I'm like super into it and when it's happening now
1: I'm like you're destroying the earth friend you need to stop you know <laughs> this, but, is uh, like, this is not the hubris of man <laughs> it's like <laughs> when, yeah hubris is quaint when it's a hundred years ago actually experience the effects we <laughs> I mean, know better yeah and i like that I, so you uh you you referred to there were two different problems they were solving and the second one you referred to was the sewage and you referred to it at, at one point as problem number two and i just wanted to know if that was a joke was that a that joke was, was that... it
3: was a joke it's written it was written into the book it's i, I can't help yeah, no, say that it definitely, it's one of those things. I,
2: yeah. I was okay because intentional it's so It's, it's juvenile yes
1: i in general there there aren't a ton of jokes in 99 percent invisible and uh and you do not usually you don't like roman doesn't laugh during the parts of the show that are the show they he he will laugh during the uh the conversations afterwards sometimes right, right. but but not that often the first time i met you roman i was it, i it, someone made a joke and you laughed and i was like i've like when we we were talking, I was like, "Wow, this is very surreal." It's mm-hmm. the, it's the 99% invisible voice coming out of a man, right, right, and then right. and then you laughed, and I was like, "I feel like I've never heard that absolutely delightful chuckle." Mm-hmm. And uh, that's more an observation. I'm not gonna like have you answer for that decision.
3: <laughs> um. Well, I, well, I think well, as we've been doing more and more uh, Q and A's with the with the staff, like when they tell yeah. me stories and stuff, mm-hmm. um, there is a kind of like. Um, they, the, the staff, uh, I don't know, somebody mentioned that, like, I love to hear the velvety giggle of Roman Mars. And so Velvety Giggles has showed up. It's just like, oh, we're going to do a, an episode and Velvety Giggles is going to be there. And so, um, you know, uh, I can't help but be charmed by the staff. And I feel like I actually mm-hmm. laugh a lot, like, in, in terms of those things. But when we do a reported story, like, there is a place and a time for it, for sure, but the, with the Q&A part of it. I almost can't help but do it, like I'm so charmed by it. And we, we do, you know, like, you know, I'll know what we're kind of doing going into one of those Q and A's, but I like to keep a lot of the information like separate from me so that
2: I can react mm-hmm. to it.
3: And, and sometimes, and, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, but, and sometimes we we really do surprise them too. Like sometimes we'll just be oh, like, yeah. don't actually, you know, like I've got something written up, but don't read any of it. And I'm gonna show you this uh-huh. thing and i want to get your reaction to it. And so often you'll, you're hearing his, his legit on the spot, like, oh my God, is that real?
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. Like- so
2: this is, this
1: is a question that I have for you as a, as a content creator. I don't know the answer to it, but I, I you know, so you know it when you see it, what, what makes something fascinating? What, like, how do you, like, do you know what that is about the world when you're like, wow, that counts, that works?
3: I, I don't know for sure. I do know that when, we was, when I was trying to figure out what the recipe for a 99% Invisible show was, it was that it had one story, like a kind of an individual story that was being told. It had one big idea, like a design lesson, and it had one takeaway fact. And mm-hmm. the takeaway fact was not necessarily the thesis. It was just the thing that you remember. It's like the tweetable thing. And sometimes I can identify what that is going to be. And oftentimes I cannot. Like, I don't know what is the thing that people are going to write the tweet about.
2: And I will tell you, like, for example, the Chicago River, you would think reversing the Chicago River would be the takeaway fact. But I, I, my takeaway fact was Bubbly Creek, that there's a mm-hmm. section of the Chicago River that bubbled up mm-hmm. with methane bubbles because of all of the waste that was being put into it. And that stuck with yeah. me, like as much t- as yeah. the huge engineering feat. My
1: takeaway from that story was that 5% of Chicago died of a, of a cholera outbreak, which is not a thing I knew and is a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Like that's sure. one in every 20 people you know died. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably more if you lived in certain parts of the city and less in others. Um, but what, like, oof. Uh, so um, you, guys, uh, you guys have given us an opportunity to, to in this, project like do a better job of imagining the and seeing and like witnessing the history of a city in its like existing form and uh like seeing the layers of history in a place I think that's very important because it reminds me that like this is not a static thing that I live inside of and Mm. and I get I get caught up in that and I get frustrated when things are changing in my city and I need to not feel that way how do we how do we not feel that way
3: well, I think you kind of hit on it is that if you, like most people like enter into the world, we're, we're solipsistic, narcissistic people, you know, like in the best way. And so when we enter into the world, we think that's the way that things should be, you know, like that is natural state of, of human brains, you know. But like studying the things the way we do or, or like the, that we explore in the book lets you know that we're we're just on this moving train it's always changing that there was so much that that decisions that were made to get to where we are now and when i think it gives you the tools like knowing that history knowing that evolution gives you the tools to sort of take in when things change today and we just had this event this pandemic which you know caused a lot of you know city changes kind of instantaneously in terms of how we space ourselves out and how we use roads and um i think it's an interesting time to be looking at the past because I think the future is, is 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 I think it's the most dynamic it has been for cities in a really long time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say too that in the, you know, especially towards the end of the book, the last chapter, we talk a lot about how individuals can not just look at cities, but also engage with them um, and respond to them and maybe like mm-hmm. add something to them or change them in ways that they want. So I think there's, you know, there's certain things that like reversing a river that only a giant municipality can do. But there are changes that individuals can make, too, that can then Mm -hmm. lead to bigger changes. So I, I hope that people come away with with like a sense of empowerment about, you know, their own cities and things that they see wrong and maybe see a new way to fix or at least raise awareness about.
1: Yeah, and and on that note, before we go to audience questions, I'm curious if you guys, uh, with this perspective, you know, have any thoughts about what might be different about cities in the future? Well,
3: I think that people are going to take a real close examination of of public transit in a way that I'm kind of scared of, actually. Like, I, yeah. you know, the BART, uh, you know, ridership went down by about 90%. I don't know when you get more comfortable and makes that possible again. Um, I wish I knew more what was going on with Chicago because Chicago was a town that, you know, like I completely existed on public transit in Chicago. Um, and so um, that one's weird, you know, and, and the one thing I'm, I'm kind of curious about I'm kind of, you know, we talk about this in the book, um, this, the invention of the elevator and the self uh, breaking elevator that Otis invented, um, really changed like which one is the most valuable floor in a in a building like it, for the longest time the first floor was the most valuable floor. the rich people never wanted to walk upstairs and so the fanciest floor was the first floor and then the elevator came into a safe elevator came into being and then they marketed the penthouse as the greatest floor of a, of a building and now You know this 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 one form of public transit that we probably don't consider public transit, but the elevator is like this tiny form of public transit that we share. It's a tiny box that you're going to sit next to someone, and they're you know usually less than two feet away. And you know if a if pandemics are regular part of our lives, or this one lasts a long time, um, will it make the elevator such an undesirable place that
2: the top floor will be an undesirable place? And I'm really curious about that kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm, and on the flip side, I mean, you you mentioned like, uh, that the devastating death toll from a pandemic in Chicago, and you look you look at that, you you didn't know that it happened. I I didn't mm-hmm. know that it happened. Cities also bounce back, right? Like yeah, they're resilient organisms. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't. I don't know, you know, what the future holds, but I do, I don't think that this is the death of cities or or anything like that. I
3: don't think so either. I mean, I've been sort of intrigued by this too, this idea, like I've never, I haven't heard about the 1918 flu, 18 and 19 flu epidemic. Like I, that is not part of the culture of the 20s when people talk about the roaring 20s and stuff like that. It, Mm -hmm. It seems like it's absolutely gone from the record at that point. And I hear about it now because it has this parallel to where we are now. But um, I I think it's super possible that we'll get in a, a couple of years on the other side of this, and people it'll just be gone from people's memory. Mm-hmm. You
2: know? yeah, and what I, I'd love I, to see in the meantime is just like let's let's take this this quiet time in cities where cities are not very busy. Let's invest in infrastructure. Let's do all these mm-hmm. projects that are hard to do when everybody's driving around everywhere. Like mm-hmm. let, like let's make use of this and just improve everything. It's kind of maybe too optimistic, but.
1: <laughs> I, I was always, so I, I, I remember at one point in my uh, youth playing SimCity 2000, as all of us probably did because we're nerds. Um, and, uh, and discovering that something like 25% of my city was roads. And, like, roads are a very invisible thing. You don't notice that they are there. You don't notice how many square feet they take up. But, like, walking across a road takes a while. They're big um could we have a world with fewer roads It sounds like great space yeah
3: and and there have been lots of attempts to sort of reclaim that some of that space and i think there's been because of the crisis there's been more experimentation with roads and taking over roads than i think it has been in decades, honestly. And and one of the things that's important to remember, and, and you know, again, we talk about this, we talked about the show, we talked about it in a book, is like roads were not invented to be a thing for cars to drive on. Roads were, were a conveyance for all kinds of constituencies. There's people and trolley cars and rail lines and horses and people just like put up a, you know, like they started vending in a hut. You know, they were just like, you know, like it was a weird place that had a lot of fewer rules. And so, you know, we gave, over the car you know to cars for a long time and there is no reason why we can't take some of it back
2: no and, and the exa- the example I like is uh, one of the examples I like is is in Barcelona and it's and what they've done is they've converted sets of three by three blocks into basically a giant mega blocks so they've just sort of eliminated people traversing up and down and across like picture a tic-tac-toe board. And they just take Mm -hmm. nine blocks and turn it into a super block, and it's just—it makes total sense, right? You just give more people more space to like walk around, and they can still wrap around these blocks, get whatever they need, and things like that. Where it's like, you don't—there can be a balance. There can be a better balance.
3: So, Hank, I'm still seeing you frozen again now.
2: Um, you want
3: to? Do you want to come back in and out, or just like I'm? I'm a little. Oh uh, dang it. Yeah. But if you start me with a question, we can go for it.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can. We can hear you.
3: I can hear you. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, if you can hear me right now, <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> then uh, then this is a question from Elizabeth who asks, have you ever noticed a change in a real life design after you did a show relating to the problem a design tries to solve? Have you have you seen have you either seen a thing get solved or maybe it was already solved and you didn't know it yet?
3: Okay, so uh, while Hank is away, I will let you know this thing. So that TED talk that uh, Cuddy uh, <laughs> mentioned, I call her Cuddy, we called her Cuddy back then at WBEZ, um, mentioned was I was this, it was a sort of call to arms and, and a little bit of a, a, a shaming session on all the bad city flags that existed in the world because I thought all of them had the potential to be as great as Chicago's. I don't know if they can ever be quite as great as Chicago's, but they had the potential to be as great as Chicago's. And since that TED Talk has existed, um, over 200 municipalities have changed their flags as related to the, the talk. They always cite it. It's always embedded in some newspaper article. I always get tweeted about it. Um, it, it is a real thing that brought uh, an effect out in the world. Sometimes it's a, you know, like a... It's mostly a good effect. Occasionally, people write me uh, nasty things because they like the old flag. <laughs> but, um, you know, but for the most part, that was something that like, I never thought that we would really change anything. But, um, but that one really had an effect out in the world.
2: I, I don't know that this has percolated fully through the system yet. But we've talked quite a bit about, you infected me with your obsession with W4-2 science. Yeah. And after I started writing about it, I had somebody approach me from like the U.S. Department of Transportation, and like tell me that they wanted to talk to me more about it. And they never really followed up, but I kind of like in the back of my mind, I hope that that is like moving its way slowly through like some federal bureaucracy, and they re- like I want to believe that they're rethinking that sign. And I've seen examples that look better. I don't yeah. know if they're exceptions or if there's like something new that's going to become the new standard. And if it changes, I will feel like we changed the world. <laughs> it's a small uh, thing, I know, but.
3: It's an important sign. People it's an important sign. It's a merch yeah. sign. It's
2: very important.
1: I can
3: see you again. Hey. Hello, terrible I'm here.
1: Um, the terrible news is that that did eliminate all of the questions that I had had queued up in the <laughs> chat. So, luckily, I have more of my own to ask you. <laughs> uh,
3: that's great. They can feed yeah, more S- in, sure.
1: Saba's working on it. Um, so, uh, how how awful is it to design a book about design?
3: Oh, it's a it's quite a burden.
1: <laughs> a
2: little bit of pressure, yeah. To to design it's it well. It's really
1: gorgeous. It's re- like it's it's it is like the 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 feel of it is very good. I love the, it, but it's also like this, the book design is really wonderful. It's obviously was a ton of work and a ton of thought and like a ton of skill. So you guys yeah. found good people to work with. Well,
3: that, and that, and the secret is the good people to work with. So like Patrick Vail, um, the illustrator, was the first person that we connected with. And, and his his work almost immediately um, seemed to fit what we wanted to do. Like, immediate, like from the very, very beginning, I was... It was emphatic. There was never going to be photographs in this book. There was never going to be literal um, on, you know, on abstracted examples in, in the book. Um, and I knew it wanted to be, to have line drawings. And so there was something about Patrick Vale's style, which was like, he could, he could have the, he could have the detail of a scientific drawer, but also had this way of mm-hmm. expanding out and being in, 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 in like making it more and more abstract. And uh, it just it fit us perfectly, and so he would go through and, and illustrate more than we had asked for, um, to make things clear. And then Rafael Gironi, who who designed it, um, the, the the layout and put it put it all together and did the cover. Um, Again, like these are these were not things like we had some um, ideas and Kurt had a ton of ideas and we talked them all out, but there was all these different constraints and 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 things we had to consider and and Raphael was able to sort of combine them all and turn them into something. Um, this is not the book that I was I had in my head at all. Like they just presented like cool iterations of it and I was just like it was it blew me away. You know, even well,
2: um, even just the language of the design elements of a book like. The publisher would mm. use words that I just—I had to Google. I'm like, yeah. I don't know what that. What what is uh-huh. paper overboard? I don't know what that means. And and Raphael was just fluent in that language. Like he knew from having worked on books, you know, how many colors can you have? Like what does what does it change if you do or don't have color? Uh, have different amounts of color? How like what are the different ways that you could put a book together? That you could bind it and and having somebody who, who has just been through that experience was invaluable. Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah it is it's it's, it's like in any in any uh design field you discover that there is just a tremendous amount of of uh very specific knowledge to that. I, I like I used to assume like you assume that designing a book is easy because it's just like it's a bunch of words and page numbers and like that's it. <laughs> but man, is it it's very easy to do it badly. It's yeah. it, like, I have no idea how to do it well. Like I've tried and I can't make it look good.
3: It's well, t- tell me this because I'll, I'm going to ask you a question because it seemed like your two novels, um, they the the sequel and the, the original and the sequel had a, a design language that was shared and they uh-huh. seemed like it was natural that the second one came after the after the first one was that did you have that in mind that it could be iterated and the colors could be changed and that sort of thing or did you was that was that
1: yeah the cover design yes yeah Yeah, we we were we were looking for it because we knew it was going to have a sequel from the beginning and and we're looking for something but but i think that oftentimes you know it's surprising how easy it is to do that how to take a design and 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 make something that shares a design language but looks very different Mm-hmm. Um, and I love series covers. It's one of my favorite things is to see how people like make a thing that looks the same, but looks very different. Yeah. Um, so. And they trick me
3: like, like I see that the new design of a Stephen King book and I'm like, Oh, I feel like I do need that. You know? Like- <laughs> <laughs> so like they're doing yeah. their job, you know?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any more audience questions? Um, yeah, I do. I have a great one up here that, uh, that I loved. Oh, gosh. Well, there is a bunch of them. There's so many questions. Um, (laughs) I guess I'll have to search for it. Oh, that does, there's no way of searching. I'll find it. I want to ask (laughs) you this question first and then I'll find it. Uh, This is from Corinne, who asks Do you think uh, we're more prone to notice the beauty of the natural world and therefore taking the beauty of cities for granted?
3: I think we are wired to notice a type of ostentatious human design, you know, like a, 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 mm. a beautiful building, a Victorian Beaux Arts Capitol building. I think we I think we get that pretty naturally. Um, I I think what we need to prime people for is the more everyday utilitarian design. And 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 some people are you know, like prone to that, like, like in, in San Francisco, for example, like I think that Sutro tower is the, is a beautiful object. It's a large, you know, radio antenna that it has like lots of, you know, angles and it's red and white. And I I think it's gorgeous, but people thought that was a blight when it was, when it was erected on, on the, on the Twin Peaks. And so I do think that, I do think, yeah, we're absolutely wired to appreciate beauty in nature. And I think that there are some, you know, beautiful forms, that humans make, which are kind of naturally line with all that sort of stuff. But it, we do have to expand to sort of, if you, you, you there's some uh, attention and maybe some learning that goes into you appreciating like Boston City Hall, for
2: example. Yeah, although well, I would say when, when you look up clo- when you when you like get up close to a concrete building, even if, you know, brutalism doesn't naturally sit well with you, you get up close and you see the aggregate and you see the details and like the way it's put together I would argue, you like it's again a matter of like once you understand like what the thing is doing, mm-hmm. you will start to find it beautiful. And the place where I went to architecture school had these huge cantilevered staircases that went across the atrium. And at first, I was like, "This is kind of a dull building." But I thought about like the span of those stairs, and the more I thought about it, the more I just thought, "This really is beautiful." It, but it is a slight i mean, it's less you know sunset and birds chirping. And it's more like, you know, you have, it's like, it's like certain kinds of art, right? Where you have to have a bit of context to really appreciate a piece.
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, what I, you know, what I take away from a lot of this is that the, that is the human part of it. Is that like, none of this stuff was, was never just existed. Like this Mm -hmm. was all made by people to achieve a goal. And, uh, and that goal is to serve you is to, to make something for you. And that might not be something that's like you want to stare at for a long time. Maybe it's something that you want to use to get to the second floor. <laughs> um, so I, Sarah reminded me of a thing that, uh, when I don't like asking people what they do at, at parties because mm-hmm. they're just like, Oh God, now we're talking about work immediately. And like that I do that enough. So, um, uh, so I, I like this icebreaker question, and I had forgotten it. Uh, but I talk about it on my podcast like two years ago. What's your favorite bridge?
3: I mean, the the problem is it's it's it's, it's going to be extra hard it, for you. It's the Golden. Well, no, it's the Golden Gate. Oh, I, I um, think yeah, it's, it's really I,
1: good. <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think it's
3: probably the greatest human made structure, actually. Yeah. Like I I mean I I love it so much that and 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 i'll tell you one of the reasons why i love it just to contrast it with something maybe more interesting (laughs) the bay the bay bridge the the western span of the the eastern span of the bay bridge is also quite lovely it's the new one that has a has a central um suspension part and um but it feels it doesn't feel it doesn't look great from the side it's really great to drive over you you feel like you feel how tall it is you feel kind of how overwhelming it is you see the lines going over you it's really lovely Mm. The, the Golden Gate Bridge works no matter where you are. You can be looking at it from the side. You can be driving over it. When you go through the Robin Williams Tunnel and you see it for the first time, it blows you away. If you're down at uh, Cavallo Point and you see it from below, it's amazing. You know, like every approach, every use of that bridge is gorgeous. And I do not know how they do it because most bridges are not like that. <laughs> so the fact.
1: I so have a the, favorite it has a built-in reveal in the tunnel where you're like <laughs> yeah. you don't see it and then yeah. you're like there it
3: is. It's like stunning. It's so magic trick. Yeah. Was your skirt? Uh, I
2: have I have a favorite bridge story that is from Chicago. Okay. So I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with that. But um, I I, I do love uh, the bridges that raise and lower downtown. I think they're really neat. And uh, the story though is that there was a guy who figured out a way to get up inside like underneath the bridge like in the framework beneath where cars drive and then he started moving in like furniture and like a television and he just lived there and this is a bridge that goes up and down so when that happens you know his house would go up and down and eventually they found and evicted him but i just thought what what talk about noticing things right here's somebody who is like i wonder if i could climb up and live in that bridge. And mm-hmm. I, I, I just
1: love it. We had a man who lived in the in between the floors of our office building for a while uh, that we didn't know about, and then found out about. It was pretty wild.
3: <laughs> that is very, very wild. I don't know, that doesn't sound quite as fun.
2: Yeah, it's like, <laughs> no, reminds no. me of a creepy criminal episode, actually, a yeah. um, yeah. criminal podcast episode.
1: <laughs> yep. Um, it all turned out fine. Uh, this question is from Jennifer, which is the one that I was trying to find before because it's adorable. Um, my civil engineer and road designer mother made me get out of the car to see the largest precast box culvert in South Dakota. <laughs> 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 I, I felt I felt like I was say I was I embody, I became Roman Mars. Who, who? Oh my who, god! Cool. Who was your favorite pointer outer of things that you have met? <laughs> <laughs> I love a pointer router it's yeah it's absolutely true Those those people who are like i know a thing this thing
3: right i don't know if i have a a sort of like a, a, a you know a formative one in in you know like in my past life i mean right now my my partner joy is one of those people like who just loves the world in a way that i'm like is is kind of new to me you know like and so like she's that for me at at this point but i I didn't have one of those as a kid like i i really had to develop this muscle on my own and i I maybe you know reinvented the wheel with um you know you know like in in the process of me becoming the person that pays attention to those things um i i I was i'm i'm sort of a autodidact in that regard i don't know kurt you you have like a you know your your parents are really engaged with the world it seems but i don't know
2: yeah, I mean, having having academic parents who talk shop at the table was, mm-hmm. was really boring at first. <laughs> really great in hindsight. <laughs> like, like, you know, so one of them studied history and English, one of them studied math and physics. They're both professors, so they kind of have all the bases covered. <laughs> and so they taught me to be interested in the world, in the history of the world, and I, I mean, I, I love them so much. I have so much respect for them, and like, yeah, they're like two of my greatest inspirations. I also have a have a cheap answer, um, which uh, may sound like you know, it may sound fake, but it's real. Roman Mars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Roman oh. Mars. I mean, really, when I discovered Nine Pi, it, it, it was pretty early on. It was in the first couple of years, I was just like. This was made for me like oh. this
1: mm-hmm.
2: like I was working I was writing about design in kind of a similar way um but here was here was Roman just like telling these stories and getting me to pay attention to things and I was just blown away so I was a super fan for years yeah. before I joined the show
1: oh I like mm-hmm. that
3: question
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, uh... The, the process of like discovering 99% Invisible well into its existence, meaning that you have like a huge uh, backlog of content that you just get to have an episode mm-hmm. you've never heard whenever you want. It always makes me, people are like, sometimes I want to like learn about a new podcast and then I'm like, but I haven't even listened to every 99PI yet. So like, why why would I, why, why are why people still making podcasts? Exactly. <laughs> um, this question is from Luis, who asks, in the process of writing a book, um, did you find out things about publishing and creating books that were similarly interesting as, as you, as observers of the world, are always
2: discovering new interesting things? I mean, both both, I think, our agent and our editor, maybe some other people have said to us, but they've never met anybody like as interested in the process of making the book as us. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's totally a compliment, right? Like, like (laughs) I don't know if they love us looking over their shoulders like that, but we just have questions about everything. So yeah, like part of the joy of the book was learning how to make a book and yeah, I've learned a lot.
3: Yeah, I mean, stuff about the the size of the book, how it was printed, you know, like, I, I had intended to go to the printer to go to all these things and document it um, before everything got shut down. But we turned in the book, I think, just like 20 seconds before quarantine started, you know, and so like, it, it, so after that, we, um, we, I just couldn't couldn't do it. But that was my intention was to just go to Italy and see it printed. I, I think it was actually printed in Indiana, but but like they told me at some point that maybe there there would be a print in in Italy, and I was like, sure, I'll go. Um, and then um, the I, I learned all, a ton of stuff, like the dimensions of it. They were like, you can't go too crazy with the dimensions because it won't be sh- it put in stores properly. You know, th- things like that. It was it was super fascinating. Yeah.
2: yeah, and 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 I would say too. I mean, they're just like there's all these little things and not to too hard plug the website but I've been writing all these articles too along the way and and I have some more coming out yet too that just talk about different aspects of the process like the illustration process I talked to Raphael about the design process and, and that's not coming out for a few weeks but like it's got pictures from like every stage and I don't know I, I love documenting that kind of thing like I love finding out and exploring like the processes of things so I was it wasn't work for me it was just like I naturally wanted to document it all
1: Mm-hmm. This uh this question is from Shamim who asks, is there and I have always been curious about this myself, is there a story behind the 99% invisible logo?
3: Okay, I th- I think I heard you say is there a story behind the 99% invisible logo? You're cutting out a little bit for me, Hank. Um, you know, um a you know, a fellow named Stefan Lawrence who was referred to me by Jesse Thorne. Um he he uh, he designed the logo. Um, I hadn't really thought about the. I mean, he he was he was the one who figured out the grid and the idea that one of the squares would be um, yellow. Um, uh, although his original design was that the final square, the the lower right hand corner would be the would would be the yellow square, and um, and I wanted it somewhere, you know, like. Well, more, more random, I guess you might say, and so uh, that is the story of the logo. Although it's been, you know, like it has, uh, every, every once in a while, this because the because the the font chosen is not is not regular inside of a grid. Some some designers get, they're like, maybe you should pick a different font or do something, you know, do something a little bit different, <laughs> oh, um, but, but it is kind of, it is what it is. I mean, I, I always say, just, you dance with the girl who brought you, you know? Like, and so maybe there's some room to update it someday, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And, and one of the things I was really happy about in terms of the book was like, I think I was a little sheepish to like, um, would, to carry over the design language of the book. Um, or the of the show to the book like you know i just wanted to make sure it had a really good reason for doing it i didn't want just to impose upon it and the, for the sake of branding and co-branding and stuff like that um but Raphael, like naturally kind of took to it and 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 married like all of these ideas um into the into the book so so yeah um, the, and then um, the
2: typography too i mean it's like it's like the, like he was like of course i used the the font yeah. from the logo, and then I just worked around that. <laughs> yeah,
3: no, you they, just kind they, of had
2: a natural instinct for it. I,
3: I totally, I, I was, I was surprised by that because I thought that he might find that to be too big of a constraint to kind of deal with, and and I was really ready to let it go, like, because I, because I'm, I'm a big believer in design in the, in the broad sense that you make a thing, to serve the purpose of that thing of that format, and so. Well, if, they, yeah, and so if it didn't, if it if the if the you know typography didn't serve it yet well, then I was like okay with it, you know. Yeah,
2: yeah. and we do get like hints of that ninety nine pi logo on these intro pages, the chapters, where it's sort of like there's one spot in the grid, which is like a see through.
3: To the, other to the to, yeah,
2: so you kind of it kind of like zooms you in on a detail of the previous page's illustration, which is like a nice way of like. Again, drawing your attention and like getting you to notice something about it.
3: Yeah. Hey, Hank. Hi. <laughs> we should uh, we should elect whomever in Montana is running that is going to make your internet better. Yeah, that
1: would be uh, Governor Steve Bullock.
3: I think I think so. I think Steve <laughs> Bullock would be the guy to do it. Um, so we have we have five minutes left. Do you have a one more question or something like that?
1: Yeah. Um, I so so I I am always curious about, um, you know, creative journeys. And I think that you, you, y'all have had a really interesting one. I, at a number of times in your careers, you, you have had to decide whether or not to keep making your thing bigger and better. And you have continued to decide to do that and to do more things, to take on more things. And I'm, I'm wondering sort of like, do you feel that as an opportunity or an obligation or just the default?
3: I mean, I think it's an opportunity a lot of the time. I think it's inertia some of the time. And I think it, 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 it is required to be inertia some of the time because you can't just like push something forward because of your like will all the time. You kind of like sometimes just have to, you know, you have to do it. And, and in a way, I kind of have to do things now because, you know, we have a team of people and I want to keep, keep keep them having good jobs. And, you know, so, so, you, so you can t- keep doing that way too. But what also happens in that process is, you know, people come on like, you know, Kurt, like the, this project, the book project could, could not exist without Kurt, like in any way, you know, <laughs> like, and so, and so like those creative opportunities that come out that, that keep it interesting, um, it really is important to the evolution of things. And like, certainly nine pi as it existed in 2010, would not exist today. If it was just running on my own power, I would have figured out some way to do something else. But it was the evolution of it and adding collaborators that that made it go to where it is now, for sure.
2: And I'll I'll speak from the position of somebody who I did I did sunset a pro, my kind of main project um, at one point that I had been working on before I joined ninety nine pi. And eventually, it just became became too much. It was a sort of it became sort of a side project, and then um, and then I shut down this this web publication I'd, I'd worked on for a long time. And I just I realized one day it had gone from being like a thing I had enjoyed to a thing that was just a burden and the thing that I was enjoying and like was 99% visible. And so for me it was a very intentional leap to like join this show and work on this book and like like these were this was like a set of decisions about priorities of what I wanted to work on creatively and who I wanted to work with.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you guys found each other and that you made such a beautiful thing. Um, and I'm glad that the Chicago Humanities Festival has had us here to chat. is a really great conversation, even though I was not here for moments of it. Um, and uh, thank you, Roman, and thank you, Kurt. And thank you to the Bank of America as, as well, who I hear is our sponsor. <laughs> thank you so much, Hank.
3: I really appreciate yeah, thanks, you jumping you. in and doing this for us. That's so kind of you. Cool, good night, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to our conversation with Roman Mars, Kirk Kolstad, and Hank Green. You can explore upcoming programming and help support our work at chicagohumanities.org. Follow us on social media at Shy Humanities. Members and donors like you drive 100% of our free digital programming. Thank you for your support.